Thank you all very much for joining us here this evening at the Institute for Government for this event on pitching ideas for tax reform. Um, the setup is that we're going to have three people pitching ideas and then our panel of experts responding. This is modelled on a popular television programme fronted by Evan Davis, but not in any way ripping off the copyright of that programme. Um, this event forms part of a bigger project that we're doing here, looking at the barriers to tax reform. It's a really important part of policy in the UK, but an area that is remarkably hard to change and to change sensibly. And that's what our wider project is about, and we hope this evening will be a fun illustration of some of the many challenges that face uh, tax reform proposals that you might uh, dream up and what to, want to get implemented. Um, we're delighted to be partnering for this event and for two other events with Deloitte. Um, so before I kick off the event, I'll hand over to Daniel Lyons, who'll say a few words from Deloitte. Thank you, Gemma. Um, I have a confession to make. I am a tax advisor. Uh, tax advisors sometimes get a bad press. Uh, when my daughter, who's now 22, was 15, we're having breakfast, and over the cornflakes, um, she said to me, she was a, a reader at that stage of the um, broadsheets, and, and she said to me, uh, Daddy, I used to think your job was boring. And I thought, okay, fair, fair enough. She said, now I think it's boring and immoral. <laughs> she's 22 now. Hopefully she's got a more sophisticated and nuanced appreciation of what her father actually does. Um, but I think there's a very broad consensus that the UK tax system is in need of reform. It's too complicated, it's inefficient, and sometimes it causes disruption. Uh, it does sometimes impact on the revenue-raising capacity of the government as well. But despite this, successive governments have either not been willing or not able to make major reforms. In fact, the reforms we have had, one could say, have added to the complexity and inefficiency. So we're therefore delighted uh, to work with the in Institute for Government on this very important and politically neutral project um, to look at areas of tax reform and then to look at the barriers of that reform and how those barriers could be overcome. So I hope that the ensuing debate will be neither boring nor immoral. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. Um, so let me start by introducing our panel of experts, um, hopefully representing a range of the challenges that face tax policy making. Uh, on my far left, we have Paul Johnson, who is director of the IFS, uh, my former boss, and has also spent time as an economist in government as well. So hopefully you can draw on both of those sets of experience to challenge uh, the proposals that we're going to hear today. On my immediately left, immediate left is Rupert Harrison, um, who is currently a portfolio manager at BlackRock, but formerly was, I think, chief, chief economic advisor to George Osborne, uh, both in opposition and then in government. Um, in preparing for this, I, I dug out an article from 2012 from Fraser Nelson, who described him as perhaps the most powerful person that no one has ever heard of. I think probably for this audience, you have heard of Rupert Harrison. Um, but he was also... Not powerful anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Also apparently jokingly referred to in government as the real chancellor, so hopefully he can give some views um, from that perspective on what makes for good tax policy. Uh, on my right, we have Paul Wallace, who is an economic journalist and author and formerly economics editor, European economics editor, sorry, of The Economist. Uh, and on my far right, we have Jill Rutter, who is a senior fellow here at the Institute for Government and worked for many years in senior roles within the civil service. Um, so we'll provide some perspective from that angle as well. Um, 
And I'm really particularly grateful to um, the three pitchers who have been willing to come along today and put forward their ideas on tax reform to help illustrate for us some of the challenges um, that tax reform faces. Um, we're going to kick off with Shreya Nanda from the IPPR. Um, I'm really, really very grateful to Shreya, who has stepped in very much at the last minute into the shoes of Karis Roberts, who unfortunately is ill this evening. Um, but Shreya is going to pitch one of an idea that she put out in a recent publication. Um, so I'll hand over to Shreya. Please do take the stage. Um, thank you very much for having me. Um, so apologies for starting with a cliche, but the economy isn't working. Um, inequality has increased substantially since the 1980s. Many of the supports that used to be in place to ensure that everyone had a chance at a decent life have been removed. As the FT reports, the story of our economy is increasingly one of rentier capitalism. <coughs> Who your parents are increasingly defines your life chances. Investment in the real economy is low, and young people and those without, without assets are increasingly locked out of the economy, left trapped in a low-wage, low-skill, and high-debt equilibrium, while those with assets zoom ahead. Um, there is a pressing need for change. Um, the tax system is one of the most powerful ways in which we can reshape the economy to ensure that it works for everyone. We want a tax system which ensures a fair social contract, where everyone is rewarded fairly for the work that they do, um, that recognizes the right of everyone to the knowledge, infrastructure, and institutions that we've built up collectively over centuries, that raises enough money to properly fund public services and investments, and that doesn't tax rent-seeking and extractive activity more like, lightly than productive activity, or tax the richest more lightly than the rest. So the idea that I'm pitching today is that income from wealth, and more specifically income from capital gains, should be taxed the same as income from work. At the moment, labor is taxed much more highly than capital gains. People who earn their income from going out to work pay far higher tax rates than people who earn their income from capital gains. The top tax rate for capital gains is 20% for most assets compared to 45% for income. And asset holders additionally benefit from a generous range of tax reliefs. Someone who earns 100,000 pounds in capital gains would pay only 14,000 pounds in tax whereas someone who earns the same amount in income would pay 33,000 or closer to 40,000 once employer national insurance contributions are taken into account. Uh, as George Osborne argued in 2010 when raising the top capital gains tax rate, it's not fair that some of the richest people in this country have been able to pay less tax than their cleaners. Um, aligning the two rates has been policy in the UK before. Under Nigel Lawson, the rates were aligned in 1998 and stayed that way until 2008. Aligning the rates would have several benefits. First, it would raise the money needed to fund vital public services and investment to ensure that people and businesses can prosper. Secondly, it would lower inequality, something we know that it's associated with a more productive and prosperous economy. Thirdly, it would be good for growth. All taxes create distortions, and spreading the tax burden more evenly allows us to minimize the total amount of distortion created. Um, fourthly, uh, the, tax system, the current tax system doesn't distinguish between productive activity and rent-seeking. Aligning the tax rates would reduce the undertaxing of rent-seeking and allow us to spend more on measures to, increase, um, to encourage productive activity, like investment allowances, which I believe Sam is going to talk to you about. Fifth, it would provide a necessary backstop to the income tax system, preventing the wealthy from converting their income to capital gains to avoid paying income tax. And finally, it's a necessary step to make sure that the tax system is sustainable going forwards. If wealth continues to accrue disproportionately to asset holders, without changes in the tax system to reflect this, income taxes will have to rise to maintain the revenue from an ever-shrinking tax base. How much would these changes raise? Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty around this question, but we gave it our best go at producing an estimate. 
um, based on analysis from the Treasury um, from the 2010 budget, and this suggested that these changes could raise between £6 billion and £21 billion pounds a year, depending on whether or not a tax-free rate, rate of return allowance is introduced. So that's obviously that's uncertain, but that gives you a kind of estimate of how much in the range that these figures could, these changes could raise. Um, in terms of implementation, this would effectively mean ending the separate system of capital gains and rolling um, capital gains into the existing income tax system, so it's less complicated than the creation of a totally new tax. Um, we think that it's something that could be implemented in one go and relatively in the short term, though there's potential to go further by considering national insurance contributions and also income from dividends. Um, in terms of the impact on growth, um, as I've said before, this is about spreading the burden of taxation more evenly across different forms of economic activity. To put it another way, of course, it's correct to look at the potential economic costs of increasing the rate of capital gains tax, but this is only one side of the story. We must also consider the costs of, by implication, charging higher taxes in other areas or funding um, public investment and services at a lower level. Um, in an ideal world, oh, sorry. Um, in terms of winners and losers, um, the losers here are the relatively small group who make the bulk of capital gains. For example, the majority of capital gains um, taxed are made by those who make gains of over a million pounds each. And we know from polling by Oxfam and Tax Justice UK that a clear majority of the public support these proposals. 69% of the public support the idea that income from wealth should be taxed at least as highly as income from work, with 36% in favour of taxing income from wealth more highly than income from work. And in terms of parallels from elsewhere, as I've said before, these taxes um, were previously the same until 2008. Before this, taxes on passive income were even higher, up to 98% as part of the post-war economic settlements. Um, in 2010, when the top tax rate on capital gains was raised, we saw tax revenues rise by more than the Treasury expected. And in Denmark, capital gains are taxed at up to 59%. So to sum up, I think all of this should give us confidence that these changes are necessary, desirable, and implementable. Very much. So, Paul, let me come to you first. Shreya has pitched the idea of aligning the capital, capital gains tax and income tax treatment and made some claims there about who the winners and losers are, but also about the economic benefits of doing that. What are your thoughts? Does this stack up economically? Uh, I think broadly I like the idea. I think it is, um, you know, it's clearly distortionary that we have very different rates on capital gains to um, earned income, and it's clearly a very easy route to avoidance. Um, uh, there are some obvious things you could do without doing everything you've just described. I mean, the first thing I would do with across the whole tax system would be get, get rid of entrepreneurs' relief, which is this <laughs> absurd system which essentially gives money away to very high-income self-employed people or uh, business owners. Um, uh, so I think everything in that direction is moving in the right direction. I, I suppose I've got um, a couple of um, concerns. I mean, I'm slightly concerned uh, about the way you describe all of this as about rent-seeking. I mean, clearly not all capital gains are about rent-seeking. Some of it is about real investment and real returns. But, the, but, 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 but I suppose the, the thing I think you skated over right at the end, you said it would raise between 6 and £21 billion depending on whether you implemented a, an RRA. Is that right? Yes. So for those who don't know, RRA is a rate of return allowance, which essentially would mean you would only tax the excess returns or returns above a normal return. Is that, is that, is that right? 
Um, so, uh, so I think that, at that point, you know, you do need to worry about capital gains tax if it's taxing. Certainly, if it's taxing inflation returns, you don't want to tax inflation returns, and ideally, you don't want to tax the normal <coughs> returns so that people can get a return from their investment untaxed because you are you you are investing out of earned income which has been taxed on the whole. So. Um, I, I guess my question is: I mean, you, I mean, are you? I think it makes a big difference whether you're pitching something with or without that, uh, with, with or without that allowance. Do you want to come back on that? Um, yeah. So, um, in terms of the allowance, I think that like, there is a case for an allowance, but um, there, are, that is under an economic model that makes certain assumptions. But in reality, we know that there are things that aren't in that model that apply in the real world, like the fact that people's access to borrowing is constrained, that people invest in ways other than just buying assets, for example, investing in education, which, which isn't taxed by capital gains, um, and the fact that people can, to some extent, choose to shift their income between earnings and capital gains. So all of those yeah. things sort of go against the case for a rate return allowance, which is why I think probably the optimal <coughs> policy is somewhere in the middle. Okay. Well, we might buy part company on that, but I think... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think <we're laughs> The, the, the broad argument for taxing at the same rate is good, but I don't think there's a very strong argument for taxing certainly inflationary gains and, and probably normal returns at, at that rate. Rupert, let me come to you next. I mean, Shreya referred to the fact that this is actually rolling back to a Nigel Lawson policy. Mm. Were you convinced by her pitch about what is the political argument that this fits into? Um, yeah, broadly. I think the political environment for this is actually pretty good and probably better than it's been for a long time. Obviously, you know, mainly you would... Uh, historically, you would have assumed that a policy like this would be a policy implemented by a Labour government. But actually, I think you would increasingly find a lot of Conservatives who would, make, who would agree with the case around a fair economy, the need to rebalance uh, rewards in the economy. Also, the kind of, there's a strain of thinking uh, on the right in tax policy that you know, Nigel Lawson was effectively God, and therefore anything that was good enough <laughs> for Nigel Lawson you know, must be the right uh, solution. It's a lot simpler. It certainly gets rid of all these boundary issues between income tax and capital gains. Um, so I, I think that obviously, you know, it's quite a big tax increase on quite a lot of people, so the politics are going to be pretty lively. You will certainly get big campaigns from Telegraph and the Mail um, saying this is the end of the world as we know it. Um, you might get the sun on side. I think that would be the kind of, you know, thinking about things in the old-fashioned um, uh, kind of Fleet Street way of thinking about the politics. Um, the, uh, I think that, the, 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 so I actually have, you know, real-world experiences, because when we came into government in 2010, we had a coalition, and capital gains tax was a, uh, a point of contention, because I think the Liberal Democrat policy in going into the 2010 election was exactly this. Um, and we got some very, well, first of all, the first thing, actually, that George Osborne was taken aside and spoken to by Ed Troop in the Treasury was, you've currently got a policy in the coalition agreement to increase capital gains tax, and you're going to get a huge amount of forestalling because everyone's going to try and sell assets in the next few weeks. So do we, we recommend that you put the, the rate up today, um, which uh, I'm quite glad we didn't decide to do that because I think that would have been rushed uh, anyway. But that, So there are lots of issues around capital gains tax changes and timing them. Um, but the evidence that the Treasury and the HMRC presented to us at the time was that actually you, the revenue impact is much less than you expect and you cannot extrapolate linearly the revenue gain from going from 10 uh, or 20 to 28 um, or 18 to 28, whatever it was that we did at the time. Um, not only is there a sort of incentive effect and diversion effect, so investment might go elsewhere, or investment might not happen, or, or avoidance effect, so particularly with realising capital gains, people can leave the country for a period of time. It's much easier than 
uh, than avoiding income tax. But there's also a very important effect, which is lock-in. So if you have high rates of capital gains tax, the people don't realise assets. They sit on their assets for much longer, and so you push a, a lot of revenue a long way to the right, and actually you don't get anything like the revenue you expect. And there's also an efficiency impact, which is the distribution of assets in the economy is increasingly distorted. Like who owns what becomes very distorted by the tax system, and maybe the person who can make the most use of an asset is not the person who's owning it. So we actually got uh, evidence from HMRC. The recommendation was actually 28% is the revenue maximizing rate of capital gains tax. Now that may have changed, um, but unless it has, I think that not only makes the policy more problematic because you might raise no revenue, but that also feeds back into the politics, which is if, if it becomes apparent that you've put up tax and you haven't raised any revenue, that will cause you a big political problem because it looks suddenly like pure signalling and not actually good tax reform. So do you want to cut? Sorry, do you want to? Um, do you want to go give, given timing, comments. let's okay. collect some comments and then I'll give you the opportunity to respond to direct comments later. Um, so Rupert touched a bit already on the, how the media might react, but what are your thoughts on how this would go down publicly? Well, I think going back to the famous Lawson budget, um, he made that change at a time when he was also cutting income tax rates. So I think it's part of a general theme, which is that it's much easier to uh, make unpopular changes. Change with capital gains was unpopular in a context where uh, you're not just focusing on losers, but there are, you're, there are winners and losers more generally. Um, another thing, I just reinforcing what Paul said, he also, in, in 1988, he extended indexation, inflation indexation, so it encompassed all past um, uh, gains, because previous to that it was only ones after 1982, and that's very important. Of course, indexation has been taken out of the system, and one of the features of your proposal was that you know, you had headline numbers which were very high, but then if you actually incorporate indexation or, or the return calculation, it brings them down a lot. I'd just make an another observation about it, which is that um, over and above the very interesting observations that Rupert made. Um, in terms of the overall take, I mean, we're, we're in a decade where capital gains have, have just increased so much on the HMRC figures, you know, two and a half times as big in the most recent year compared with five years ago. And that's exceptional. And I don't think we get some of the numbers in your company proposal, therefore, I think, look exaggerated. I'll let you come back on that in a second. Um, Jill, so if you were sitting there as a, a civil servant looking at this proposal, what would be worrying you? Oh, well, if I was, I'm slightly worried because I'm sure there are lots of people who know much better than me in the <laughs> audience exactly what they would be saying. I mean, I think so. I think going to Paul's point, I think I would be possibly a bit worried about the complexity with the RRA or bringing back indexation relief because, in a sense, the sort of different rate is a proxy for uh, not having that, I think it was you know, a package that will charge a lower rate but will get rid of indexation relief and that's in part your compensation for not, uh, not being uh, uh, given an inflation allowance. So I think there's an interesting set of questions there about that. Well, the other thing I'd be doing, you're, at the moment we've got this very high allowance, I think you're probably right to say it, it seems a rather unjustifiably high allowance, but that means a lot of people with small gains aren't in the system. And I'm just sort of wondering, particularly with the burdens on HMRC of all the other things they've got to do at the moment, about the administrative complexity of getting people to be declaring. I don't know what estimates you've done 
of the numbers of sort of small people who are suddenly having to make declarations of capital gains tax. And equally, if you tax it as income tax, it, if it's quite lumpy, so a sort of person gets a gain one year, because capital gains isn't annual like, uh, like salaries. If you realise your gains in one year, but actually your sort of, you know, income goes down and you don't have gains the next year, are you actually sort of being unfair to people depending on when they realise their gains? And as a substitute, <coughs> might it not be better to, to start off by doing things that Paul mentioned, like getting rid of entrepreneurs' relief, getting, you know, taxing capital gains at death and some of these other things that actually erode the capital gains tax base that are relatively easy to get rid of before you do your big reforms. So I'm just wondering about sequencing. So do you want to come back? I mean, there were a couple of people asking about the costing you put on this policy. Do you want to come back on that particularly and then anything else you'd like to pick up on? Yeah, so um, in terms of the Treasury estimate about the revenue maximising point, I think I just would point out that the Treasury did underestimate how much money their changes would raise by about 30 or 40%, so I'm not sure you know, how much stock to put in that. Um, in terms of the lock-in, I think that is a good point, but I think that, because, like as you say, we're in a climate where this is now, there's support for this potentially from both the right and the left, so there's less of a, an incentive to wait around for the next government to come along and reverse this change, so potentially that, that's less of a concern now. But lock-in will still happen even if you don't have an expectation of a future lower oh, rate. Yeah. Um, well, that, it will happen less, back, but it will still happen. That comes back to our point about spreading distortions, I think, across, because obviously income tax being so high, that has a significant distortion. Um, I, on your point, about, I didn't quite understand your point about, um, you know, capital gains have been very high now. Are you saying that they won't be so high going forward and so this won't raise as much money? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think our, our aim would be to go to an economy where, which isn't driven by massive asset price inflation, so that would be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine, but, but it's in your numbers. I mean, it's in your. You're, sure. you're assuming it, sure. they yeah. carry on at this point. Well, thank you very much for your pitch. I think I would take that as pretty. Uh, I'm not going to ask the dragons to say if they would uh, invest, not dragons, obviously. Um, <laughs> I bet you get money out of this one. <laughs> um, but thank you very much for your pitch. Thank you. So next up is Sam Bowman, who is a principal at Fingleton and a senior fellow at the Adam Smith Institute with a very different type of tax proposal for us. So over to you, Sam. Um, good evening. Thank you very much for having me. Um, good evening, Dragons. Um, unusually uh, for a Dragon's Den, the audience can shout at me while I'm speaking and tell me what an <laughs> idiot I am while I'm going. So I do ask that you wait until I finish my remarks before throwing tomatoes and things like that. Um, I'm sure everybody in the room has kind of broken a remote control watching somebody pitching, you know, a driving seat for babies that you'd have put in the front seat because babies really love the scenery and things like that. Um, but I'm really disappointed to find out that I'm not going to be getting a fraction of the, uh, the bid. Um, if I come away from here um, having given up you know, half my company for 10 grand, then uh, you know that I've messed up. Um, but my proposal is to do what I think would raise business investment in the UK and end a major bias in the tax code. Uh, this is to make the annual investment allowance unlimited and to move as we can to full expensing of business investment. Before I explain what that is, I want to set the scene. Um, the UK has a major investment problem, and it has for a very long time. Uh, between 1995 and 2015, we had the lowest rate of business investment in the OECD. The Bank of England in 2015 predicted that the next three years would see business investment add 1.8% to GDP. Uh, possibly because of Brexit, who knows? Um, business investment only added 0.3% to GDP over those three years. Um, and in the last year, to the end of 2018,
business investment fell by 2.5%, again, quite possibly because of Brexit. In the 10 years following the financial crisis, UK productivity growth was abysmal, 1.4% in 10 years. Just to be clear, that's 1.4% in the total of 10 years, not every year, in the total of 10 years. We'd normally be hoping for something like 2% or just under that. And this matters because investment drives productivity, it drives wages, and ultimately it drives economic growth, tax receipts, and prosperity. So how do taxes affect this? You might think, why am I talking? We have the fourth highest corporation, fourth lowest, excuse me, corporation tax rate in the OECD, and that's true. But according to the Tax Foundation's International Tax Competitiveness Index 2019, and if you've all read that, I apologize, I'm just talking your book, the UK has the 35th out of 36th uh, best, so second worst, corporate cost recovery rates in the OECD. We're second only to Chile in the entire OECD. And what do I mean by this? Now, everybody, pretty much everybody, agrees that corporation tax should tax profits. Operating expenses, things like pens and paper, labor costs, rent, are deducted immediately from a business's uh, revenues, and what's left over, roughly, is profit. That's what we tax. Now, imagine if we didn't let businesses deduct their rent from their tax bill, if we didn't let them deduct those as operating expenses. Then businesses would be paying corporation tax on both the profits and on the rent they were paying. So we would expect businesses that have high rent bills to try to cut back on that. They'd be renting less, they'd be cutting back on the money they were spending on rent because they were being taxed on that. Now that would be a very silly way of treating rent. But this is exactly how we treat capital expenditure and capital investment. The way we tax capital expenditure, rather than allowing businesses to deduct the cost when they incur the cost, is to ask them to deduct the cost over some kind of notional lifespan of the asset. Over sort of eight years, depending on the asset for computers, it's more like three years, although it's quite a complex system, and I'm sure there are tax accountants in the audience who will correct me on my exact uh, lifespan. But over time, because of things like inflation and because of the cost or time value of money, the alternative things you could have done with that investment, the actual amount, the real amount of the investment that you make um, that, that you can deduct from your tax bill is less than 100% of the cost of the investment. Depending on the schedule, depending on the amount of time that it takes for you to deduct that investment, it can be something from 97% for some things, to 84% for some things, to 28% for some things, to 0% for a few things. So what that means is, if you make an investment in a, in a machine for a factory, you can only deduct in real terms, 84% of the true value of that investment compared to, for example, operating expenses. So this creates two problems. Number one, obviously, it means that we're taxing investments so we're getting less of it. And number two, it biases the tax system against machine-based, factory-based, manufacturing-based businesses and in favor of more services-type-based businesses that either spend more money on operating expenses, labor, uh, rent, um, computers, which are not quite operating expenses, but are a little bit more like that. It creates these two problems that I would like to solve. And I want to reiterate, everybody agrees that we should allow businesses to deduct investment from, the ta from their tax bill. What I am proposing is to fix the way we do that so that we really are allowing them to deduct investments from their tax bill. So recent history. The UK significantly cut the headline corporation tax rate um, from 2010 on. Um, it, we brought it down from 30% to 19% with two more percentage point cuts coming. But interestingly, during this period, um, 
corporation tax revenues as a share of GDP barely moved. They've roughly hovered between 2.4% and 3% of GDP uh, for about 30 years. Now, some people have said that this is a kind of Laffer effect, or to give it its proper name, the Ibn Khaldun effect, where when you cut taxes, sometimes business activity and economic activity increases so much that it pays for the tax cut. I think that's slightly optimistic, and I don't um, agree with people who think that. Because what we also did around this time, from about 2008 on, was to lengthen the asset lives of investments and to make capital allowances, the amount of capital deductions you can make, less generous. We went from, in 2008, 88% of the value of a machine investment down to 84%. And we went from 60% of the value of business investment, uh, sorry, building investment that you can make, down to zero. And it's only this year that we've introduced a new measure that will increase the amount that you can claim back from industrial building investments up to about 28%. So over the period 2008-2010, the effective marginal tax rate on business investment actually increased. And over the period between 2008 and 2016, factoring in the corporation tax headline cuts, the effective marginal tax rate only fell by three percentage points, even though the headline rate fell by 11 percentage points. And this is, this is data from the Oxford Center for Business Taxation, by the way. So my proposal is to get rid of this quirk of the tax system and to allow businesses to deduct all of their capital investment today. This is what's known as full expensing. Now, I have four papers, four empirical papers, that I think are very interesting. And I'm not going to bore you with each one, although I did print them out, uh, because I know that dragons really do like their sources and data. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about them in the discussion. But one that I think is really interesting is by Eric Orne, which exploits um, a kind of quirk in the US tax system, which allowed states to choose what kind of tax base they wanted to use for corporation tax purposes, effectively giving some states that wanted to full expensing and other states that didn't want to not. And employing a, a reasonably uh, a kind of modified difference in differences model, which compares kind of like with like and compares trends in one state with similar trends in other states, um, business, uh, states that adopted full expensing during the 2000s saw a 17.5% increase in investment and a 2.5% increase in wages over this period. There's another paper from the UK that, looks at, that exploits a change in what counts as a small and medium enterprise to look at businesses that did qualify for increased capital allowances from 25% to 40% with very similar businesses that didn't qualify and finds that the ones that did qualify for these increased capital allowances saw an 11% increase in investment. And just recently, uh, Robert Barrow and Jason Furman, two very good economists who tend to come from um, different sides of the political spectrum, although they're both economists, so I don't want to read too much into their politics, um, co-wrote a paper for the Brookings Institution where they pretty much disagreed about everything. It was on the Trump tax cut, except for one thing. The best thing that they could have done was to make full expensing permanent. And if they had done that, their projection was that it would have raised wages in the US by 5% and raised long-run GDP by 6.7%. So my suggestion is that following this evidence and following this logic, we should also see a large effect in the UK. But and here is the problem with this. All of this would cost quite a lot of money. Um, this is a very, very, very big but very targeted tax cut. Now, I don't have as um, well, well fi figured out data as uh, Shreya. And um, this is another. Uh, I don't work at the Adam Smith Institute anymore. I, I unfortunately, I don't have time to do this. But according to data that's sort of back at the envelope, and this is some of the, one of the things that the dragons are really going to hammer me on. Uh, by the CPS and um, by the Tax Foundation, full expensing of all business investment would cost something like 19 billion pounds a year, which is enormous. 
And that's mostly driven by the effect on buildings, because buildings are a huge part of business investment, and currently we're extremely ungenerous. Right now you just cannot deduct building investment from your tax bill. However, the headline rate cut um, from 19% to 17% is about to cost £6 billion. If we stopped, if we didn't do that, that would give us £6 billion. That would get us a third of the way. It may be that after Brexit we need a fiscal stimulus, and it may be that we decide that increased borrowing is a good thing for the economy, and so that may be a good way of targeting that kind of fiscal stimulus in a way that could be economically productive. But in the short term, I suggest that we make the annual investment allowance permanent. Uh, or, or, excuse me, that we make the annual investment allowance unlimited. And this would be targeted on plant and machinery investment only, and the long-run cost would be somewhere around £1.2 billion a year. The catch, there's always a catch, is that a lot of the costs would be front-loaded because we'd still be allowing all of the investments that have been done to be written down and depreciated, even while we were allowing future investments to be written down immediately. So the cost would be somewhere around £9 billion for the first year, decreasing to about £1.2 billion, £1 billion over the course of around eight years. To conclude, one of the interesting and I think very sad um, events under the Thatcher year, uh, administration was the significantly less generous treatment of capital investment by businesses. We went for, in many cases, 100% expensing, effectively full expensing, of machinery investment to 82% expensing. So much, much less generous treatment. And from <coughs> around 94% expensing of industrial buildings to 48%. Now, I don't want to over-extrapolate. I don't want to overfit my model. But I think it's interesting, when we look at the places that we consider left behind by deindustrialization, that they tend to be places that are or were dependent on manufacturing and, the, and heavy industry. And I think it's interesting when we think about the last few years and the places that we describe as being left behind, that the places that probably would benefit from increased investment in fixed machinery, plant, heavy, heavy um, industrial buildings, are the sorts of places that we might wish had more stake in the growing economy and had more stake in Britain as it is today. I don't think we can change the past, but I do think we can change the future. And that's my proposal, to write the system and end that bias against those places and against that kind of economic activity. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. Rupert, let me come to you first. You advised a Chancellor who did quite big things to the corporate tax system and also really cared about reinvigorating the Northern <laughs> Powerhouse. Are you sold on Sam's vision of this policy? Um, no, I, I am pretty attracted to it. I think it is, has many advantages. I think investment is a weak spot in the UK. Clearly, uh, that's relatively well targeted on our productivity problem. Um, it is a simplification of the tax system. Um, however, I, um, you know, it's a lot of money. Um, you know, the prior, our priority starting in 2010 was to reduce the rate. I think one of the reasons that the, the revenues have, you know, been better than expected is one of the big drivers of that was international tax competition and profit shifting, which is something that we, you know, all governments are trying to address. That, that international companies find it increasingly easy to choose where they report and declare their profits. Um, and there's a constant a sort of assault on trying to do that. The OECD is leading a big project that has produced some um, kind of good reforms to try and do that. And, but that actually, therefore, by reducing your tax rate, 
uh, the costs were far less than a sort of static impact because people would choose to report more of their profits in the UK. That is, frankly, you know, engaging in global tax competition, but that is the, real, that is the sort of environment we face. Uh, and the OECD project is designed to try and kind of prevent that happening. Um, and I think that just briefly on sort of the politics of it, you know, spending that amount of money on a business tax measure is a very um, particular kind of political decision. I think you're right. It's the kind of political decision that you might make in a kind of crisis environment where you've suddenly got uh, a need to support the economy and maybe, maybe the kind of constraints of the public finances are maybe temporarily a little bit less binding. Um, whether this would be a kind of effective short-term fiscal stimulus, I doubt, because I think in an environment where businesses are very, very uncertain about the future, suddenly reducing the cost of capital and investment is likely to be kind of pushing on a string, I suspect, because their concerns about the future economic environment will be far more important. Um, and then you know, the other, you know, why do politicians spend money on business tax cuts? Uh, you really, it's because they believe they will have a real impact, because there is effectively no direct political gain um, from business tax cuts. The politics of business tax is very, very different from personal tax, where it's kind of very visceral and there are winners and losers. Um, and therefore, for, uh, you know, politicians will think, well, this, if I'm going to spend this much money trying to increase investment and improve the economy, I've got to trade this, these huge sums off against other things I can do, whether that's direct capital spending, whether that's supporting R&D, science, investment in other ways. Uh, and so I suspect that you wouldn't end up with a decision that this was the main priority for kind of that sum of money in that kind of process. Um, just to be clear, my proposal is the £1 billion uh, annual investment allowance yeah. and to move It's towards, £9 billion to start with, though. Uh, it's £9 billion to start with, yeah. That's it's quite one, a lot. £1 billion in long-term yeah. long costs. Yeah, yeah the, the five-year budget scorecard wouldn't like that profile of cost. Um, Paul, let me come to you next. How, how would you react to this? Um, well, I think in a sense you mentioned Lawson, this was the 84 change that he brought in, and... Um, he really changed the structure such that he brought down the corporation tax, which was then 52%, brought it down to 35%. And at the same time, he made the allowances, which, as you say, were 100% for um, plant and machinery, 75% for industrial buildings. And he, he, those were all lowered. So he set us on this path, which, in a sense, we've continued following, whereby we bring down the headline rate, but we compensate for that thereby trying to retain the corporation tax receipts by making the allowances less generous. So, but what you're doing is having both. You're having the low, well, you say you might not carry through the 19 to 17%, but you're having the low corporation tax rate and you're having the 100% allowance. And I think that's problematic. I think, I think the implication might be to, to raise the corporation tax rate and you want to rebalance it in some way. But anyway... I, th I think the thing that we should be focused on is the effective marginal tax rate, the effective marginal tax rate on investment, and both of those things have an effect on that, right? The headline rate and the um, amount that you can deduct from your tax bill both affect the uh, the amount that you're paying on new investment. The headline rate also affects households' propensity to invest, so it's not quite as simple as that. But I think that the idea that there's a kind of happy middle between these two things, and if one goes down, the other should go up. I mean, really, what we should want is as much investment as possible, given other constraints that we've got. And if we can target a tax cut in a particular way so that we are um, eliminating a significant tax on a thing that we really want business to do, you know, we really, really want businesses to invest. And for lots of reasons, it would be quite nice if businesses that are biased against from investing in heavy machinery could do so on the same terms that businesses can invest in rent and people and computers. Um, it's, so I think it's less kind of, in my opinion at least, 
less about sort of keeping some sort of happy middle and more about thinking, what do we want businesses to do and what are the things that we are doing that are stopping them from doing it? Jill. Uh, well, I think uh, you know, from a bureaucratic point of view, Rupert's point that this is simplification is actually quite powerful, but I think the upfront revenue uh, is potentially a problem. So I think it would be interesting to see if you, whether you think it's worth doing as a sort of structural reform on its own, because obviously uh, ex full expensing is worth less if your headline rate is 17% than if your headline rate is 25% if you really want to be boosting investment. So I think it's sort of quite interesting. Would it be worth trying to do it in a way that contained the cost? But one of the things that strikes me is if you ask business what their pressing need is in terms of business tax reform, they're actually not wild about increased um, uh, the trend to just always be cutting the corporation tax rate. They say, well, actually, we have much more urgent problems because those, by definition, only help people who are actually making profits. They you know, would say, my first solution would be, I'd actually like you to do something about business rates, which affects all of us, whether we own our property or we rent our property. So I'm just thinking in terms of the competition, even for a, an effective giveaway to business, though I think yours is interestingly being much more dynamic in a sense than a sort of business rates cut, which is just sort of cash flow bunts, whatever. Is this actually the top priority for a big giveaway to business if you were working in the sort of constraints there, and would it be worth doing as a structural change, even if you were trying to do it in a way that looked more revenue neutral? And I'm quite interested in how quickly your nine billion unwinds. Is it a one-year nine billion, and I get the money back in 2050, or is it? Uh, it's. I, I want to be. I want to be careful because it's, it's quite. A, it's quite a complex system. But the core number that we should be thinking about is about an eight-year time horizon. So, it, so most of the kind of capital that we're talking about has a kind of eight-year um, notional lifespan. So it's not helping me over the scorecard period, as no, uh, no, Robert Chope would say. Actually, the point you make about business rates, I think, is, is very well made, because uh, most economists would tell you that business rates are not a tax on businesses, they're a tax on landowners. Mm. Um, because when you cut business rates or kind of any kind of land tax, it will very quickly capitalize into rents, because businesses basically, they don't, they're, they're bidding for a, for a thing that's there. The supply of land isn't changing. Mm. Um, and, it's, and if you change the cost, one element of the cost of being there, then people will just bid up the other element, which is rent. Um, and there's a lot of empirical evidence that that's the case. Um, but it's a, it's a very well-made point because most businesses don't seem to know that. And most businesses don't seem to care about that when you tell them that there's loads of evidence that a business rates cut will probably capitalize into rents within three or four years. They may not see their rent contracts adjusting quite as quickly as Well, uh, no, the that. British Property Federation um, actually did a study that looked into the kind of period that it would take for it to capitalize and 75% of a business rates cut would capitalize into rents within four years. Mm. So even, even in a very short mm. time span, we're looking at a very, very rapid capitalization. Mm. But mm. politically, I would love to see a chancellor stand up and say that. Cool. So would I. <laughs> <laughs> there, were, there were some quite big claims in Sam's proposal about the benefits that this would have for the economy and the dynamic gains from encouraging more investment. What are your thoughts on that or any of the other the economics of this policy? Well, um, I, I quite like the economics of this one too. Um, <laughs> I'm obviously in a very good mood this evening. I mean, the current system is absurdly complicated, treating all sorts of different things differently mm -hmm. and treating them the same um, and allowing upfront uh, expensing makes sense from an economic point of view. I mean, I think, I think you do, and uh, this is a whole layer of complexity we don't get, want to get into, but where you're talking about debt-financed investment, this does involve 
a subsidy and getting around that subsidy, particularly in the financial sector, is incredibly hard. Uh, but let's just part that. Thank, thank uh, you very much. <laughs> I, had, I had a five-minute segment of my speech, and I said I'm not going to inflict that on anybody tonight. Um, even people who come into this event, even though, even we do not want to hear about debt financing. Of, um, uh, so, so uh, you, beyond that, um, I, I think there's a lot to be said for the proposition. I think it's quite interesting as a sort of general rule. I, I think people have the general idea that you know. Economists think that broad bases and low rates are good, but actually we don't, certainly not always. And I mean, what you're talking about here is a narrower base and you know, potentially, if we, I, mean, I think potentially a higher rate, but um, if we wanted any, to, to bring any of that back. And because getting the base right is actually really important in terms of, um, in terms of investment. I think Rupert's point about international competition is quite important, though, because I think what your proposal would do would be to, um, and this is you know, really important, would be to increase the incentive for real investment in the UK, but it might reduce the incentive for profit shifting into the UK, which might increase the cost um, in the short run or short to medium run more than you're suggesting, actually, and by, by an amount that's really quite difficult to estimate if the, if, if the rate were to go up in... Um, in compensation, so I suspect one would end up losing most of the money, um, and, and I think you know your original proposal, which was including uh, buildings, was a lot more expensive, I think, than Much your fi yeah. your final one. And I, you know, in the ideal world, we'd move we'd, we'd move towards that. Um, so I think uh, yes, this is the right you know, this is the right way to go. How you do the cost benefit analysis of this against all the other things you could do with your one nine or nineteen billion or whatever it would turn out to cost. Um, I don't know, but I think it will be relatively high up my list of places where I would put tax cuts. So can I I'll pose one final question of my own? Because we've been touching on this issue repeatedly of you're saying there is not a necessary trade-off between the rate of corporation tax and the width of the base and how much you exempt. But would you be willing and still pushing this proposal as a benefit if you needed to raise the rate somewhat to recoup some of the cost of this policy? Is it still makes sense? Absolutely. What matters to me is the marginal tax rate on capital investment. Um, as I say, the headline rate matters for that, but this matters a lot more. And um, if we have to choose between one or the other, and given that we have £6 billion worth of corporation tax cuts planned, I suspect that we could find a little bit in that to make this happen. Thank Brilliant. you. Thank you very much. <laughs>
um, this allowance is in the tax system. So it's about 110 billion um, in foregone tax receipts this year. Um, and actually, that's an underestimate because that is only the foregone revenues on existing taxpayers. So everyone who earns less than 12,500 aren't included in that estimate. So it's extremely expensive. Um, it's also risen very rapidly um, over the last 10 years. It's gone up twice as fast, slightly more than twice as fast over the last 10 years um, than it did over the previous 20. Um, and so by implication, that increase, that recent discretionary intervention um, has also been extremely expensive. So what are the principles of, of the personal allowance? Why, why have it? Um, National Audit Office uh, t t tend to not really um, go into too much detail on, on, um, on trying to you know, uh, ascribe motive from, from government, but they um, basically classify it as a progressive uh, tax expenditure where the objective is to make the tax system more progressive. Um, it also has a role, I think, in improving financial work incentives, certainly in terms of the participation rate, if not so much the progression rate. So uh, the marginal effective tax rate is obviously lower uh, for people that are entering work um, uh, from, from unemployment as a result of the personal allowance. And you know, it's also valuable as an administrative tax simplification device as well. It means that a lot of tax doesn't come into the system and therefore reducing um, admin. A lot of incomes, low incomes, don't come into the system. Um, but I'd argue that it's... Um, performs poorly against all three of those, um, if, if, if only for the reason that it's also an incredibly expensive way to do a lot of these things. So in terms of progressivity, it, it actively, it's actively regressive. It, um, it, could, it could hardly be more perfectly regressive across households. Um, so if you model this across uh, equivalized um, household income, um, it's almost perfectly regressive. The, heart, the, the richest households um, pay a lower proportion uh, than almost anyone else. Sorry benefit, um, more, sorry, benefit more from the personal allowance um, at a portion of income than almost anyone else. And the reasons for that are, are three folks. It's a little bit counterintuitive as to why that is. The first is that because it's a tax on, on incomes and, and work, um, um, it, uh, it doesn't affect those who are not in work at all. So those who have no income at all don't benefit from this allowance. Um, those families of two workers, they benefit twice, once per person, and those families also tend to be better off on average. So that's another reason why it benefits wealthier households. Um, the personal allowance is also worth double for those that earn be, um, higher than the higher rate threshold, and that's because the higher rate threshold moves pound for pound in the tax code with the personal allowance. So effectively, if you earn more than the higher rate threshold, your personal allowance is worth 40p in the pound rather than 20p. So it's not progressive. Um, in terms of improving financial work incentives um, and simplification, it does do both those things, but it's an incredibly expensive way of doing it. You're effectively giving a tax incentive, or you're trying to focus a tax incentive on in terms of participation rate, those moving into work, but you're giving it to absolutely everyone, and it's costing you more than 110 billion um, a year. Similarly, is that kind of money worth it uh, for, for a little bit of saved admin? So I would, We've got a number of objectives with the bundle of proposals that we brought forward, but for the purpose of this and tax policy, I'll, I'll kind of stick to probably three, which is improve progressivity. Uh, personal allowance isn't doing that. Um, we're also interested in improving the economic uh, stabilizers. Um, so this is a kind of a whole separate story in a way, but monetary policy is incredibly hamstrung at the moment. Future recessions, we're going to have to see discretionary policy, uh, discretionary fiscal policy, and the automatic stabilizers, tax and benefit system, do a lot more of the heavy lifting. Our tax and benefit system at the moment has been eroded, partly by um, uh, uh, cuts to wealth that we've seen over the last 10 years, and that's a problem. So improving the economic stabilizers. 
Um, and then wider reform to Social Security in general, um, in terms of uh, strengthening universalism in Social Security, um, increasing generosity um, of the Social Security system, and reducing conditionality. And I'll come back a bit more um, to that later. But as I say, less relevant if we're starting with the tax system. So I'll do the thing that you should never really do with, with a kind of a, a presentation like this, is kind of give as much detail as I can on what the proposal is, so that it can be really sharply shot down on all the uh, specific weaknesses. Um, so specifications. Um, we're talking about abolishing the personal allowance. Well, there's a little caveat there, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But effectively, for argument's sake, say, get rid of the personal allowance of income tax. We then want to introduce a new payment, um, which is equal to the value of tax um, that would have been uh, foregone on that £12,500. The value of that relief, so £2,500 um, uh, on the £12,500 personal allowance um, as it currently stands. In Scotland, it would be a little bit less because of the 19p rate is the rate that would kick in. But we're talking about £2,500 per person, um, about 48 quid uh, a week. This payment would be um, everyone over the age of 18 who can get a national insurance um, number would be eligible, possibly excluding um, people on certain types of visas, so student visas we might exclude from this, um, for example. Um, we would also mirror the current personal allowance insofar as incomes above 100000 would see their payment uh, be tapered away 50p in the pound for extra earnings, just like the current personal allowance um, is in the current system. We would also restore child benefit in keeping with this principle of universalism because there's money left over fiscally, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but we'll restore child benefit to its 2010-11 value um, as well. And then we'll actually, we will have, and we'll reinstate a small nominal tax-free allowance of maybe 300, 400 pounds, 500 pounds, just to make sure that we're not bringing in really minute amounts of income like interest on current account savings. Um, so you wouldn't have to fill out a tax return um, for these. Um, and that would be paid for um, separately by reducing or abolishing the um, savings uh, that we currently have on income tax savings and dividends. Um, the payment would be administered as much as possible via existing infrastructure, ex existing um, payments systems. So, um, one possibility would be across PAYE, across self-employed, um, tax returns, universal credit, child benefit, and the state pension. You could choose recipients who are already engaging with those systems to choose which, if there was more than one, of those systems they want the payment paid through. Um, and between, between those systems, we reach a large majority of the um, population. Um, this proposal could be implemented in one go. That would probably be quite uh, politically uh, <coughs> risky. Um, you could also introduce it very easily in steps. So you could start reduce the personal allowance, for example, back to where it was uh, in 20, 2012, 2013, back to, uh, to 10,000, and convert that into a positive payment on exactly the same uh, principle. And you could do that in a linear way over a period of time. You could also stop at any point you wanted to. If you wanted just to go back to 6,000 pound personal allowance or 3,000 as it was it started, you could do that. Um, the final point I'd make about this is that it is not a basic income. Um, that is absolutely not what uh, we're trying to build here. It's, it's not actually completely universal. It doesn't go to people earning more than 125,000 um, once it's been completely tapered away. Um, it also isn't intended to meet a certain basic need, however defined, or replace the entirety of, um, uh, of benefits. Um, it is defined, the envelope is the current personal allowance, and it's basically saying, can we meet similar objectives better with that money? Um, I should say as well, actually, on specifications, a key point is that it is tax-free, this payment, but universal credit and other means-tested benefits um, do include it in their means-testing regime. Um, so universal credit would be taken 
um, would be taken away um, as people get um, this, uh, this cash payment, just as they would, uh, it's exactly the same treatment as the income they would earn uh, from work were the personal allowance, um, uh, were the personal allowances that remain in place. Um, but it's important to stress um, that for everyone who's out of work, there's still large net winners from this, and I'll come uh, back to that um, in a minute as well. So just to kind of draw the picture, I was, a bit, I was a bit disappointed not to be able to do lots of charts on this because it was a chart-heavy um, uh, proposal. We did a lot of the modeling in a simulation model that we share with IPPR and Resolution Foundation. Um, but effectively, what we're talking about is a system where about 42% of the income distribution by individuals sees no net change. They basically pay an extra 2,500 pounds in tax because they've lost the personal allowance. They get back about 2,500 pounds in a payment. Um, for everyone earning under 12,500, they are net winners, and that's even notwithstanding uh, universal credit being being tested away. So uh, when we looked at it, it was about, um, of that 2,500 pound payment, if you're on universal credit, you might lose about 600 to 800 pounds of universal credit. So you're still gaining about 1,800 pounds a year. Um, and at the top of the distribution, for everyone earning over the higher rate threshold, you're now paying more into the system than you would have previously. And that's because this payment we're making isn't worth 40p in the pound, or 12 and a half, it's 20p. So everyone where your personal allowance is worth more, you're now paying more into the system. Um, this proposal is, is um, completely fiscally neutral. Um, in fact, it probably raises quite a bit of money, although we would, we would then try and make it fiscally neutral again by investing that money somewhere in Social Security. But it's fiscally neutral um, uh, from the personal allowance uh, savings and from the savings to means tested benefit. It's quite significant, the savings to means tested benefit. So universal credit at the moment costing or projected to cost once fully rolled out about 55, 60 billion pounds. This would take out about 19, 20 billion out of universal credit. And the, as I say, the other 110 billion coming from uh, the personal allowance. So to, just to go back against the, the, uh, the principles that we were set against, first of all, progressivity. This is highly, highly redistributive. Cutting through the noise of this 110 billion where we're kind of taking money away and giving it back to people, you're effectively seeing nine billion pounds being shifted from the richest third of families to the poorest 60% um, or, or third. Um, but it's really targeted. So actually of those, of the losers, about around half are in the richest eight, nine percent. And of the winners, two thirds are in the bottom 10%. Um, so highly redistributed, much more progressive um, than the current um, personal allowance. It also lifts about 200,000 uh, families out of poverty. It also significantly increases um, the economic stabilizers. Um, so if, for the poorest families, they'll see incomes rise by about 30 to 60%. And of course, the personal allowance in this point of a recession um, is no good for someone who comes out of work. They no longer have that. Whereas under this system, they will now have that equivalent payment. And that's and marginal prices consumer higher during recessions and when people are on lower incomes. Um, sorry, for people on lower incomes. Um, and um, and this, this would stabilize much more effectively. Um, it would also go a long way to strengthening um, universalism um, in the social security system. Um, and the reason we're interested in that is um, fundamentally because we want to improve the demand for higher quality work. We kind of have a system at the moment which is geared towards boosting job attachment and participation at almost any cost and trying to get those numbers up. As if the UK problem was that we didn't have enough jobs. We actually do, we've got a, we've got a job rich um, economy. Our problem is pay, security, and productivity. And having increased universalism not only helps with political buy-in, but the reduced conditionality also helps people demand better jobs from the labour market. The point at which they enter, um, they have, um, um, they're, they're more empowered because of the security that, that sits behind them in terms of non-conditional payments. Um, 
A big criticism um, of this, of course, is financial work incentives. When you now enter work, uh, you'll now be paying an extra 20p um, on your first pound uh, for an income up to 12,500. Um, um, and we also are producing a paper that's coming out in a couple of months looking at how this payment would dock into the universal credit system. Um, and there are two points I'd make on this. One is because it's displaced a large portion of universal credit, a really interesting feature is that you can now invest in universal credit and bang for buck is a lot larger. So things that are currently very expensive, like expanding the work allowance or reducing the taper rate, cost about a third um, to a half as, as, um, <coughs> once you've imp implemented this policy than they do currently. So one example, the taper rate costs about 700 million in universal credit for every percentage point. It will cost about 300 million um, in a system where you brought in this, um, this new payment. And so you could bring the taper rate down to 53%, which would cancel uh, the 20% uh, percentage point increase on income tax. The reason 10% cancels 20 is because of the difference between being applied to net and gross incomes. Um, and we're also looking at expanding work allowances as well so that not only families of children on housing benefit um, can have these financial work incentives um, uh, displaced. More broadly, and I'll, I'll, I'll end here, I would just say that I would, personally, I think the big, this is obviously, you know, think tank style proposal, it's at the beginning of the, of the uh, treadmill, if you like, it used to go through all the different phases, possibly get pushed off the treadmill entirely. Um, but um, I would say the two things we really need to think more about are, are the implementation, actually. So what are the systems this could be paid through? How would it be administered? And what is that administration cost? How do you reach the really hard to reach um, uh, individuals? But I think even more important than that is the politics. We are effectively talking about a big uh, tax increase for the richest families in society to do a classic redistributive uh, move. To some extent, you could sell it in as a, as a policy swap, personal allowance for, for this cash payment. Um, it, universalism just creates some benefits, but fundamentally the, the politics um, are very difficult. But if you're not willing to engage in difficult politics, then sometimes we won't get good policy. Jill, let me come to you first, because as Alfie said, this, of all the proposals, is more wide-ranging and interacts with a lot more bits of both the benefits and the tax system. And as Alfie said, questions about, is this really workable? What's your thoughts? I, uh, <coughs> I think I would be very nervous about sort of signing up to being, this being extremely workable. I think at the moment, given the state of play on universal credit, sort of anything that destabilises the implementation <coughs> of universal credit, you might want to be a bit, bit nervous about. I'm also quite interested in, in your all you need is a national insurance number and then you automatically get this payment. Uh, obviously, to benefit the income tax allowance, you need to be earning something. Uh, so it seems to me you're extending that base quite a long way. So if, I'm, you know, if I've gone off on a gap year for whatever, I've got a Nino, how do you know whether I'm in? I think there are quite a lot of admin questions about you know, are those really deserving cases might undermine the political support for something as big as that. I'm, I'm also intrigued that you've moved from the thing we know about the income tax allowance is this annual allowance, that you've gone to a weekly payment, which I can see is, you know, that's always the difficulty with tax benefit integration um, and also tax NIC integration. I'm just wondering, the alternative would be simply to convert the tax allowance into a sort of you know, uniform credit paid against everybody, so you take away the benefits for the higher rates, so you just credit everybody an equal amount against their tax bill, which would seem to offer me offer quite a lot of the benefits of this and be a much more simple 
thing to do if you basically wanted to stop the, uh, stop the regressivity of the personal allowance. And, uh, and I just wondered why you'd opted for this sort of much more complicated approach. There's also a big problem, as we saw with the conversion of child tax allowance into child benefit, that once you move something over to the sort of spending side of the equation, it doesn't get increased nearly as much. Chances are worried about that. And I'm sure the ONS, Paul would know, will classify this as public expenditure rather than tax. That the moment you do, however logical and stupid it is, and however we should treat tax expenditures, that uh, that actually this would then, you know, just sort of sit there and not be not be increased and actually be treated much less generously as chances have done with child benefit in a way that they might not have done with child tax allowances. Store up the questions and we can come to them at the end. Paul, let me come to you. I mean, one thing that Alfie touched on that neither of the other pitches, well, actually Sam did to, to an extent, is this idea of putting forward a proposal that would be phased in. Do you, does this help to sell these sorts of policies? Does um, it change the reaction in any way? No, I think people are going to respond to the overall plan. I think it's going to be seen as a base. I think the media are going to represent this certainly as a basic income, regardless of what you say. And they're going to pick over it. They're going to find that there's a large number of people for whom it just is meaningless because it's zeroes out. <clears throat> and then they're going to focus on the fact that, in effect, the higher rate threshold is now 37.5 rather than 50. They're going to look at the fact that people between 37.5 and, and 50, it's, it's, it's gradually rising to two and a half, for, for two and a half thousand pounds paid more. And so someone on 50,000 pounds will now be paying as much more as someone on 100,000. I think a lot of people are going to find that very odd. Um, it's two and a half thousand, yeah, okay. Um, That's true of the current system, people above 50,000. But I think they're going to focus on this in a distribution, in, in proportionately, obviously, it's, it's much, much less for the person on 100,000. Um, so I think those are some of the ways in which it'll be picked over. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this would have a lot of, uh, to, to go for the, this would have a lot of kind of flashing lights for a politician coming and being presented with a, with a policy. I think the, the kind of, the, the risk of this just being administratively impossible to, to implement. You know, when you've got different systems designed in different ways, interact over different timescales, you know, getting them to talk to each other is incredibly difficult. This has got, you know, UC squared um, uh, all over it. Um, I, I think you could achieve the same, I think also there's the kind of, there's a whole set of politics around the universal basic income, which this is effectively. I mean, I think that Paul's absolutely right. The media would treat this as a basic income, and there's a whole debate around uh, do we believe in conditionality? The, 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 the press would go to town on the kind of undeserving recipients of money that is being taken away from other people. Um, and I think we have conditionality in our welfare system for, for a benefit system for a reason. Um, and I do worry a lot about the work incentives. But I, you know, I felt if you're a, this is really is a kind of Labour government coming in. Want, if, you, if, you're, if you're a government wanting to come in and wanting to do some redistribution, there's a much simpler way to do it. Um, I think that would be the kind of killer argument, which is this is a hugely complex thing where there are a lot of people where you're effectively taxing them more to give them the exact same money back. They have to interact with new systems, like nightmare for them. Just raise the high rate of tax and use, channel the money into the benefit system and you'll achieve almost exactly the same distribution results, um, actually be more progressive because this is effectively a big tax rise to fund a big giveaway. And if you want to make it progressive, then choose a progressive tax rise. Actually, taking away the personal allowance from memory has a kind of hump shape. Um, so it's not that progressive. So 
raise the high rate of tax, give the money in the higher benefits, and if you want to reduce conditionality of the benefit system, reduce conditionality of the benefit system, don't introduce a whole new benefit. Cool. Yeah, I'm afraid I have got grumpy as the night's gone on. I don't think this proposal's got anything going for it, actually. I think, it's, um, uh, I think it will be, for all the reasons that, 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 that Rupert described and, and, and Jill alluded to in terms of the, its actual manageability, um, uh, I think the, um, I mean, there will be some, you know, 40% uh, of adults don't pay um, income tax, so that 40% would get this uh, new amount, and most of those are not on means tested benefits. They're pensioners or students, or they're living in households um, with uh, uh, with someone who is earning a good deal. So there will be some very there'll be some high income gainers, and there'll also be, be some arguably undeserving um, gainers uh, among that. So I'm surprised that your I mean I haven't looked at your paper, so I'm surprised your sums add up. But but I'll take your word for it because there'll be a lot of there'll, there'll be a lot of gainers. Um, uh, there'll be a lot of gainers there. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I mean, as we have, as the, um, you know, as the uh, personal allowance has risen, so the higher rate threshold has come down over time, actually. So, I mean, in, in a way, some of what you're looking to achieve has been achieved. Um, I don't think you can phase this in, because if you phase this in, as you suggest, from 12,500 to 10,000, you'd be sending checks to f for five quid a week to people. You'd be laughed out of court, I think. Um, so I think you have to do something big quickly. Um, I think the political economy point that um, Jill made is, made is really important. Once this becomes spending, um, it, it won't survive. Um, and I think, you know, actually, I mean, I, even I'm not quite old enough to have been doing this sort of stuff when child tax allowances were phased out. But I think if I had, I would have been rather in favour of moving from child tax allowances to child benefit. But I think that's been a bad move in, in, in effect in terms of supporting families with children because child benefit effectively hasn't survived. And I think um, tax allowances survive... Uh, survive better than um, survive better than benefits. Um, so I think uh, I, th I think it's got complexity against it. I think it's got deliverability against it. I think relative to a lot of other policies, it's got progressivity um, against it. Uh, and uh, as I say, I, I, I don't see any <laughs> anything positive in this one. <laughs> out actually some of the consequences of this policy of massively increasing the personal yeah, allowance I and I think that really is quite good because actually it's one of the sort of things that increasing the personal allowance is just the right thing to do and yeah. if you like it's the sort of big success of the Liberal Democrats and the coalition to persuade everybody that that is the obvious thing to do when I actually I think yeah. the really good yeah. thing about your proposal is to actually say is that really the right thing to do and is that where we really want to invest all that money in that big personal allowance with all the other problems you have about people below that. I remember Nigel Lawson, when I was I little baby that. treasury official, she says very quickly, uh, sort of had a sort of, you know, big revelation when he realised he'd been raising the personal allowance. And he said, but every time I do that, then people tell me that there are loads of poor people who can't benefit when I do it mm. anymore. And they can't benefit from my tax rate reductions. And so he sort of rather gave up and that's why it sort of, you know, went into a bed. So I th think it is good to be asked the question, can you do, you know, is that the right policy and what more might you want to do? No, I agree. I think if you were, you know, if you had the whatever it cost, the 20 billion to spend, that's not, not the, that was not a good way of spending yeah. all that money. No, I mean, I, I broadly agree. I mean, it's a great example of how politics drives tax reform mm. in practice. It was a kind of liberal democrat policy mm. that was effectively dreamed up because it was kind of popular, lots of people benefited, uh, and it was cutting tax rather than increasing benefits, and that was good for the Liberal Democrats because they wanted to differentiate themselves against the Labour Party, and then suddenly we had this coalition and the Liberal, Liberal Democrat 
demand was, well, we want our big tax-cutting policy, to which the Conservative response was, well, our, main, our coalition partners' main demand is they really, really want us to cut taxes. Like, OK. <laughs> um, you know, well, we'll have to go away and decide whether we're going to agree to this one. Um, and, and then it became this sort of, you know, it was like the main demand for the Liberal Democrats to deliver in coalitions. So it was all politics driving the achievement of it, and it was very popular, and it had some, you know, it had some benefit of beneficial effects, but you would never have designed, as a tax reformer, you would never have sat down and said, well, this is how we're going to spend, as you said, you know, 20 billion pounds or whatever it was. I mean, if you come in here and said, let's reduce the allowance a bit and spend it on making work allowance to universal credit more generous or something like that, I think that would be a much better way of yeah. spending the money. But, and also, you could raise the money much more simply if you, and more progressively by just raising tax. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much, Alfie. Sorry you had to go last, because that a bit of time for questions from all of you, which you are welcome to ask questions or comments. Um, <coughs> welcome to ask either to the pictures or to the panellists as well. Um, we'll go to these two questions here first. Um, Emma Chamberlain, uh, I guess I could say something about the coalface on capital gains tax, because it's worth remembering Labour were the ones that, that reduced capital gains tax. And I used to advise people on, you know, when they sold their business, how would they not pay 40%? And I remember when that change came in, I suddenly realized I had literally no work on capital gains tax because it was only 10%. And as one of them said, I'm not going to pay you less, a lot of money, um, just to save 10% of tax. So although I don't agree with a 10% CGT, I don't think you can underestimate the fact that you, you, you simply will not, you can't, it, raising money when you have a 40% CGT rate is extremely difficult from sales of business. People perceive it as their pension. They don't want to pay tax on that. They look at other, other alternatives. So, and going non-resident is still relatively easy to do. You just have to go for a long time now. So I, I think the, it did reduce tax avoidance, lowering the rate. And of course then, you know, Darling came in and had the 2008, um, response. But, but I mean, I tend to agree 28% does probably work the best. It, 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 from my own sort of cold face experience, that's a rate that people seem to tolerate. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting, you talked about CGT in the context of, of income, but the other side of CGT is inheritance tax. It's a sort of bulwark and that. And although you might say, well, it's very unfair that people have to pay a lower rate when they get money from a sale of a business, it's also, you could say, quite unfair that people don't pay anything when they, when they get a, a, a wealth transfer in many cases. So you have to sort of look at the role of CGT in the context of inheritance tax. And the two big exemptions for CGT are obviously no tax on death and main residence relief. And while we're talking about Lawson, he did look at, and indeed he wanted to abolish um, or at least curtail main residence relief in 1986, the papers have just come out. Um, and you can look at this, and one of his advisors say, well, it, does, it won't cost you very much now. It now costs us 16 billion, actually, main residence relief, I think. And then when Nigel Lawson pursued this point, and said, well, it looks quite attractive, abolishing main residence relief. Why have we got it anyway? Um, the advisor said, if you want to take a holiday and go into retirement, I suggest you abolish main residence relief. <laughs> and we didn't hear anything more about it after that. So, you know, I, I think if you're going to talk about CGT reform, those are areas you might want to look at as well. Okay. And just next to you. 
Hello, good evening. My name is Imran Khan. Uh, a comment from a business owner's point of view. Uh, we leave, is it possible that we leave the capital tax uh, at, as it is because the country is in the condition that uh, it requires uh, to give the confidence to the outside world to come here and invest and if we increase the capital tax then it's going to give exactly the wrong signal. And uh, not forgetting UK is a very strong consumer market, probably the strongest in the whole Europe. And if we work on the income tax um, financed by the government deficit, I mean, everybody was very responsible here in talking about it, especially the Sam, Sam uh, all the tax cuts, you were covering it up from somewhere, and that's good. But we really need an irresponsible fiscal stimulus at this stage where the country is. Um, and, and probably there, there might be a chance to in, uh, decrease the income tax, which is going to increase the consumption in the United Kingdom, and leaving the corporate corporations and the, and the capital tax at the, as, as it is, at least to give the confidence to the markets. <coughs> Thank you. Great. We'll take one more question and then. Okay. I think it'd be interesting to hear from the tax experts the one big tax reform that they would like to see. Brilliant. Um, so, do you want to respond first? I think you have actually looked at inheritance tax and capital gains as well. Um, yes. So we. Uh, I think on? I think that's on. Is there people here? If you. Yeah. Um, we, we do support um, changes to death relief um, on capital gains tax and we do support reforms to inheritance tax to make it more broad and tax the same rate as income, so I agree with that. Um, on the tax avoidance point, I'm not sure that I support the view that we should try and de reduce tax avoidance by cutting taxes. I think we should probably do it by like, targeting tax and making tax avoidance more difficult and aligning taxes across the board so that you can, it's less easy to avoid taxes by just switching your income from one form to another. Um, and then the point about um, confidence from the outside world to invest, I think that there is a tension there about do we, what, what do we do about the fact that these could push people abroad, but I think the, hopefully the answer there is to try and go for international cooperation rather than a race to the bottom. Um, so on Imran's question, Paul or, and or Rupert, do you want to respond to that? Is now the time for an irresponsible fiscal stimulus and would you pick a cut of income tax as the way you'd do that? I think the quote was a responsible fiscal stimulus. <laughs> 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 never the time for an irresponsible <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't pick income tax. I, mean, I, I think if you're going to have a fiscal stimulus, it has to be short-lived, it has to be temporary, and I think um, probably income tax is a particularly hard one to take down and then put back up again. Um, so you probably, I mean, as um, Gordon Brown did in 2009, you probably want to use VAT if you want to do something. I'm not actually sure in the, in the circumstances of, for example, a no-deal Brexit, that would be a great, I, whether that would be a great idea or not, I don't know, because we don't know to what extent there will be sort of, sort of supply, um, uh, supply constraints. I mean, you can do temporary things for, for, for businesses in terms of investment and so on, which may or may not be effective in the, um, uh, again, given the huge amount of uncertainty that we're going into, whether any, any, any tax change would make very much difference to business decisions at that stage, um, I don't know. So it probably would need to be uh, focused on the, on, on the household sector, but it's quite a, you know, given the particular circumstances, I think it's quite hard to know what the right tax change would be, I suspect better um, would be really tightly focused spending changes to support whatever particular part of the country or industry or whatever got was particularly badly affected. But that's a very difficult thing to design given the amount of um, flexibility we have and given the limited amount of knowledge we have actually about where those effects are. 
I wanted to just pick up on the point about the sort of signal you send to the rest of the world. I do think that that is very important, and I think that it that does have an impact that's quite hard to capture in a kind of economic model or a sort of uh, cost-benefit analysis of making changes to tax. Um, you know, I, d I, have d I definitely think that the UK after 2010 with a huge fiscal problem, the fact that it was simultaneously cutting its corporation tax rate and saying we want people to come here, like, had an effect over and above the pure kind of economic effect. I think that there's some of these... Uh, tax rates that are very visible um, to international investors and senior executives who don't necessarily understand what their tax team represents them. But they say, oh, I've heard that the UK is cutting its corporate tax rate at 20%. I do think these things have an impact, and therefore I think you do need to worry about, if you're going to reverse some of these things, the, the, the sort of signal that sends. And the, so I, I definitely agree with that. And I think we had a great question about what, what would be the one tax reform you would go for. Jill, let me start with you. Um, oh, I'm going to have two, uh, she said. So my first one is not a tax reform per se, but, uh, but I think we should address the fact that we ha are completely schizophrenic between things we count as public expenditure and things that are effectively tax expenditures, so achieving similar results through the tax system. So I think we should treat those on all fours. Uh, so I would add tax expenditures to public expenditure and then subject them to them all the same sort of scrutiny that we give public expenditure, uh, including those suggested by the Treasury, who might need to find some people to scrutinise it because they don't do a very good job on that. So that's going back to our excellent Better Budgets themes. The second thing is, um, once we leave the EU, uh, we have freedom over VAT rates. We don't have to be neurotic anymore that if we uh, move anything out of a zero rate, uh, we can never take it back because that's an EU constraint under our derogations when we joined. So I want an all-out war on the VAT zero rates because I really think they're terrible. And that's not just because I was scarred writing letters to mothers of oversized children <laughs> as a junior treasury <laughs> official. <laughs> Would you include pasties? <laughs> just get So, Rupert, you I just don't, you don't <laughs> do everything. I mean, what you don't do is you don't pick up, you don't pick off pasties and static caravans. You just do the whole lot in one go, and then you can do a decent compensation package, she said. But it would be very brave, Chancellor. <laughs> Paul? Um, well, so many. I mean, broaden the VAT base um, and reinstitute indexation of fuel duties <laughs> and do something about the ridiculous income tax schedule where you go up to a 62% rate, including at 100,000, between 100,000 and 125,000. Rupert, what would you do that would actually not get you voted out of office? <laughs> um, no, I, all my ideas have just disappeared. Okay, no, um, go with it. No, I mean, I think I've, I've so two things. One is a very generic where I think that our, uh, so fuel duties are very good. Mm case, but I do think our environmental tax signals are just a real mess, and so like, it's a sort of overhaul to try and have some kind of coherent carbon pricing and uh, do that in a coherent way, because that is very different across different sources of carbon and etc. So I think, and I think you could, I think there's a public appetite, you know, we just have to, all had to walk past the Extinction uh, Rebellion protesters outside, I think there's a real case for kind of shift, you know, shifting towards more carbon taxation and doing it in a more sensible way. Uh, and then I've always liked, although I know that there are big implementation problems, um, a single flat rate of pensions tax relief. I think it's quite well targeted on a genuine problem, which is um, people on lower incomes are now increasingly saving into pensions because of the um, uh, automatic enrolment, but they're not saving enough. And so if you can increase, if you could shift some of pensions tax relief away from higher earners towards lower earners and then a single flat rate, 
then I, I've always been quite attracted to it. It creates huge problems in with like DB pension schemes and things like that, but I think you could overcome them. Paul. I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> um, Merlis, so this yeah. is your, your, your <laughs> job. <laughs> That's why I don't know where to start. I mean, everything that everyone else has said, apart from I'm not, I'm not that attracted by the single rate of pension tax relief, though I think there is a lot of other things you could do to simplify and improve the taxation um, of, uh, of pensions. Um, a lot we could do to taxation of housing, sort out council tax. I mean, no one's going to elect me on this, but you know, make it um, uh, at least proportional and not regressive, and bring it up to date. And you could definitely get like, higher bands. Yeah. I think yeah. there's political space yeah. for that. Um, yeah, reduce stamp duty on, on 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 properties. Get rid of entrepreneurs' relief. Do some version of actually what our first two pitchers um, said. Uh, I think would be a good uh, uh, a, a, a good move. Um, and uh, and and, and um, a whole bunch of um, other things, but uh, that's probably enough to go on with. Yep. Okay, that was definitely more than one option each. So I think we probably have time for two quick final comments from the floor. So it's one right at the back, uh, and go here as well. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Um, a couple of times, uh, sort of tax breaks for entrepreneurs were mentioned, and I just wondered what the panelists think would be a good tax system for entrepreneurship. Okay, so that's one. And questioning, oh. um, Andrew Turnwood, questioning Alfie Sturdy's statement that uh, his system would be uh, transferring money from the richest. As I understand it, when you get to a certain income, your personal allowance is taxed away from you. So they would result in the system completely unchanged. They didn't have any, tax, didn't have any personal allowance to start with. And um, does this mean they can then get the 22,500? I don't know. But it, it doesn't seem to me that that group would end up uh, contributing more. Thank you. So one for the panel. And I mean, so on entrepreneurs, I think we have a very effective system in the UK. I mean, I would say that. But um, you know, I think that the combination now of uh, CEIS, EIS, and uh, I, I, entrepreneurs' relief, I do believe in. I think it needs to be a little bit contained, and it has been. But um, you know, you, we have, there is now a, a, a early stage funding sort of environment in the UK uh, that has is transformed relative to a decade ago, uh, and it's a really exciting uh, development in the UK economy. And you've now got a lot of these companies that have, where that money is poured in, uh, kind of becoming bigger and, and, and moving up the kind of funding scale. And you're seeing some of them uh, listing and IPOing. Um, and I think that that is, uh, so I think that's been a big success story for the UK over the last decade. Well, I, I definitely want to disagree about entrepreneur's relief, which is it's a very, you know, it's very cleverly named. It has nothing to do with entrepreneurship. It's all to do with you know, people who are you know, very often single pe um, uh, owners of a business on very high incomes, just leaving the money in the business and taking it out with a very low rate of tax. Um, once they close the business down, it's, it's all it is is a, is, a, is a tax break for people who, who do that, who are not, you know, perfectly fine people, but they're not entrepreneurs. <laughs> I think that's a bit harsh, but... <laughs> <laughs> do either of you want to add oh, anything on how we should treat entrepreneurs? Um, no, but I, I'm just going to add one thing, which is uh, one of the pieces of work we've done at the Institute for Government has been on the migration regime. This doesn't sound very relevant. But there's some things that we call charges, which are effectively taxes. I mean, there's a massive tax if you want to bring people into this country as 
tax you pay. There's no relation to the cost to the government uh, if you, say, want to become a citizen and things like that. And I think when we think about tax, we think about it very narrowly as the things that the Treasury calls taxes. There are a lot of things now that over the sort of, you know, back end nine years of austerity, a lot of the charges effectively are quasi-taxes now, and we ought to think about those as well, because the rule used to be a charge which just cover the costs, but now these clearly, either the administration costs have ballooned inordinately, or these are just basically backdoor taxes, and we ought to take those into account as well when we look things. But I think one of the things that Brexit should do is give us an incentive to have a look again at our tax system and say, actually, if we want to look at sources of UK competitive advantage going forward, how do we make our tax system something that actually is simple enough, easy enough to understand, low admin, etc., and use that as a bit of catalyst for change, even these sorts of brave changes we've discussed today. Alfie, do you want to respond to Andrew's question? Yeah, I'm really glad I got asked a question because I, I didn't um, have time to respond to the panel either mm. in terms of coming back to um, points raised. But um, in terms of um, the very riches and the income distribution, it's actually surprising how few people really know what the income distribution looks like in the UK, and that includes tax experts. Um, so uh, people that earn more than 37,500 are in the richest 13% of adults over age 18. If you earn more than 50,000, you're in the richest 6%. If you earn more than 125,000, you're in 0.00 something of the top uh, 1%. So when we talk about um, a tax increase on the richest um, 10%, uh, on, the, on the very richest, our proposal would see the top decile have a tax rise of about 2% um, of disposable income as a result of this, and it's focused on, on, on that group. Yes, you're right that the very, very richest would be no change, although that would also be quite, be quite a simple change to make, not to taper it away. Um, um, but effectively, it's a large tax increase for the very, for the very richest families. Thanks, Abby. So we are now out of time, but before we move out to drinks and further debate about exactly what the income distribution looks like, so I can see Paul disagrees. Um, given what you've heard, I would like to take a straw poll on who is sold on the three tax <laughs> we heard this evening. So first up, we had Shreya's proposal to align the income tax and capital gains tax treatment, potentially raising you in excess of £6 billion to spend on other priorities. Who would implement that in government? Ooh, pretty, that's a pretty strong majority of an entirely non-random sample of the general population in this room. Um, so next up was Sam's proposal to have full expensing of business investment, but as a first step to uh, have a higher annual investment allowance. Um, potentially, before I go to vote, I should say potentially very high cost of this proposal, up to £19 billion in total that would be need, need to be raised elsewhere. Uh, who would vote for this one? Pardon? No, no, that's the, that's the second proposal we saw. Yep, you'll, you'll have a... You, you, can, you can do more than one proposal. It's not an either-or question, this one. Okay, so I'd say pretty bit under 50% support for this one. That's the majority of our system. You just need the right under 50%. And finally, we had Alfie's proposal to get rid of the personal allowance and replace it with something that is not a universal basic income, but is a payment to all adults of £2,500. Uh, revenue neutral, um, so no overall cost to this one. Who would be in favour of this one? 
so that's definitely the least popular of the room. Although there was, actually, I didn't check how many other um, panellists were voting on these ones, but Jill was definitely voting on the last one. Um, well, thank you all very much for coming along. Um, really big thank you to our panellists and to our pitchers for helping us to kind of flesh out some of these issues with tax reform. Thank you very much.